0: This is episode 11 of the Clare Valley Podcast, bringing you the latest information from the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council, showcasing events, the ideas, the initiatives and the people of the Clare and Gilbert Valleys region. I'm Annabelle Homer. Since COVID, tourism has boomed in the Clare Valley. But the question is, can this trend be sustained? Agritourism
1: is something that we haven't really explored a lot here and... It would be good to sort of build on
0: that side of things. And we'll hear how one local business dodged all the obstacles of COVID closures after only opening its doors two weeks before COVID hit.
2: Lots of Victorians, New South Wales, sometimes even the day after a lockdown lifted, they would be in Clare, so they must have been pretty desperate to get out.
0: (laughs) Also, you'll meet one Clare Valley local who travelled to Poland to assist Ukrainian refugees fleeing their homes following Russia's invasion. And the next day, after I arrived in Poland,
3: I literally walked over to the train station, saw a tent. That's how the journey started of helping out. Completely blindfolded to it, but knowing that I had to be brave and um, rock up.
0: But first, let's get the latest from Council Headquarters. There are moves to rezone some land on White Hart Road at Stanley Flat from rural primary production to rural neighbourhood. This proposed rezoning will allow low-density housing to be developed across three lots, approximately 30 hectares. Under the Act, the landholder wanting to rezone the land no longer needs to seek formal approval through Council. Instead, it's a ministerial decision. The Council supports the proposed rezoning, Here's CEO Dr Helen MacDonald with all the details.
4: The location is, is ideal because it's right against existing rural living on White Hart Road, so it would be essentially providing more opportunities for people to who want that.
0: It's not driven by council so what's the process to enable that rezoning to happen?
4: Um, It's actually a ministerial decision so they have to do a whole lot of sort of groundwork and study it's not just you know we want to do this it's more these are the issues costs etc what needs to be done is there any contaminated soil traffic issues is it going to create problems all sorts of things services so all of those things need to be mapped out so if you just think it it's like a you know developer's got a block of land and they're going forward with it then there'll be a whole lot of questions that would normally be asked in terms of the viability of of the proposal so an application will ultimately go to the minister for and it's a ministerial decision
0: do the neighboring community they do they get a say in what there goes there is, what happens?
4: Um, under the new code, things are a little bit different. But yes, there is, there has to be consultation with the immediate neighbours. But uh, my understanding from URPS who are doing the work that they will be cons- consulting more broadly. And, you know, one of the reasons that they came to council at the last council meeting was part of their consultation process. They um, obviously wanted to understand the support that council did or did not have for the proposal. So that's essentially where it is.
0: From a council perspective, is this something that the organisation welcomes, considering there is a shortage of rural living blocks in the Clare Valley?
4: Yeah, well, there is a shortage, although we haven't studied it in depth because the more immediate shortage is really residential. Certainly, at the council meeting, the councillors did support it very much and argued that it was a, you know, it was a great thing that we this does happen and um, it's great that an individual property owner is doing it and council's not doing it. Um, so it's obviously less of an impact on the ratepayers from a cost point of view. But um, especially with council's strategic plan, which is about growing the population, you know, part of being able to grow the population is you actually have uh, space for people to either build or. By you know existing houses so a developer might come in and, and build the houses so yes it is a very positive thing.
0: There is that argument currently where there's more and more housing going on
4: profitable farming country and when does it end? It's a balancing issue between you know the desire to grow the population and make Clare uh, sustainable to the future as a town as a service centre because if we don't have a a reasonable size population, then we'll just see services disappear and it will become a backwater. That's the balancing act in terms of providing opportunities for new residential areas, whether they're rural living or um, more dense uh, residential blocks. Well, staying with land and
0: developing housing models for the future, I understand that the UNISA has put an application to the LGA to investigate housing models for Nadjeri people to return to country. What's Council's
4: involvement with this? UniSA has a formal relationship with Nadjeri Nation looking at opportunities or projects that can help address all the issues related to the removal of Nadjeri from their land. And one of the big issues that Nadjeri are facing, and they mention it to me quite frequently, is the fact that – well, two things – is one – for those that want to permanently return, they're trying to get rental properties is near impossible, either because they're not available or they're just too expensive. And the other is, in terms of affordable temporary housing, you know, for short term stays is can be quite difficult for them as as well. So that they're the issues and. UniSA approached me and given what we have in our reconciliation plan which was one of the issues was around advocating for housing opportunities for NADJRI and also a council strategic plan it was a good fit for us to be a partner it's not a financial partnership it's a partnership in terms of they'll need to go through our planning department so being able to facilitate that for them um, and also work with the local community to try and identify a block of land that this particular housing, short-term housing project could be used or and how, be located, I should say. How much land and how much housing is needed? Um, well, that's yet to be determined because it depends on the funding that they get and the cost of, of housing, each individual house, because what we're looking at is modular Houses and so totally self-contained. Until we determine what those um, key kind of fundamentals are in terms of the number of houses that are being proposed to put on a location, that will determine the size of the block. The idea is it's short-term trial, which. Is not just useful for Ngadjuri or other First Nations group. It's actually useful for all of regional South Australia. If there's chronic housing shortages, there's a model that can be implemented really quickly. Because what we're talking about is you know modular or prefabricated housing that could be located nearby any township there where there's chronic housing shortages and without having to do all that work of putting in services which is expensive and time consuming so that's the kind of nub of the proposal which if it works has potentially great benefits for regional south australia
0: moving on to the event support program funding twenty thousand dollars was up for grabs and there were nine submissions who were the successful
4: submissions have two categories. One is a regional event, which attracts um, more funding than the other category, which is for new events. And so the regional events that have been successful this time around are the Clare Valley Gourmet Valley Week and the uh, Polo in the Vines And the Clear Valley Racing Club have been successful, which is the first time they've been funded, I believe, through this particular funding program.
0: And how much do those three get each? Is it it about $5,000? So
4: they're they're getting $5,000 of uh, support funding for their events.
0: And the Jazzing and Madonna, Mintero Car and Bike Show and SA Rural Women's Gathering, they're getting... Uh, Funding as well, but not as much, I understand.
4: Yeah, they're much smaller events and they're also new events, so first-time events, and so they've been selected from those applications for between $1,500 and $2,000.
0: Unfortunately, there were some events that weren't successful, the Autumn Garden Festival, Festival of Lamb and the Tali Christmas Party. So why weren't they successful?
4: Um, Well, the Tali Christmas Party, we actually provide funding through – a different source for the Christmas events for townships, so uh, no double dipping, (laughs) basically. The other two events are events that have been funded over the last few years. So particularly the Garden Festival, I think is a well-established event, as is the Lamb um, Festival as well.
0: Dr Helen Macdonald, CEO of the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council, and just staying with local events for just a moment. Council has been coordinating some NADOC events throughout August, which is a, a yearly commitment by Council. There was the Family Fun Day at Melrose Park in conjunction with the Model Trains, Historian and anthropologist Sky Krikoff led a discussion understanding Aboriginal settler relations in Adelaide and Clare districts during the mid-1800s. A photographic exhibition showcasing historical photos of the Nadjeri people across the Mid-North, a display of First Nation artefacts at the library and an afternoon tea with the Nadjeri elders. It's been fairly well publicised that the Clare Valley experienced a major surge in tourism since COVID hit two and a half years ago, a trend which was totally unexpected and has exceeded the expectations of the local and state tourism industry. I caught up with regional tourism manager for the Clare Valley, Mim Ward, to find out how this growth can be sustained and what future trends the Valley can capitalise on in this tourism space. Mim, thank you so much for joining me on the Clare Valley podcast (laughs) today. You're one busy lady pretty much running the tourism industry in the Clare Valley, in the Gilbert Valley area. How have you been through the whole COVID situation, managing the whole tourism aspect, probably one of the toughest times essentially for tourism?
1: Annabelle, it has been very interesting and probably not something that I factored in when I first took this job on four years ago. I came back after having six months away at the end of 2019 and came back to this role in January 2000 and about six weeks into the role of course we got everything got shut down and suddenly there's no industry anymore and it was very surreal. It was quite crazy and I think everyone, though, was in the same state of shock at that time. So, it wasn't as though we were standalone. But to have a whole industry just close overnight was, yeah, pretty unbelievable.
0: So, how do you navigate through that? What was your initial thoughts of, okay, how do we get through this period?
1: It was tricky. I was lucky because we got really good support through the South Australian Tourism Commission and from there with the state government. So, from... And very early stage, we started having weekly, sometimes two or three time a week meetings with them so that any new bit of information or funding or health information that came out, we were given it straight away and then you could disseminate it out to the industry. And I think that really helped because when it first happened, you just sort of thought there's nothing I can do here. I don't know sort of how to even start on that recovery process. But once information started coming out and you could get that out to people, you sort of thought, oh, this is helping, that's good. So it was that to begin with. And then when was it, in June, when the government said that they'd reopen the borders? You know, you sort of breathed a little bit more and you thought, oh, okay, this would be great. We were talking before and saying how at the beginning of that year we had new businesses start up in the region and you just felt gutted for them because you thought oh my god you've just opened your doors and now that's all been taken away
0: from you. You're referring to the coffee shops and the main street. Yeah I am and you know there were others as well but
1: they were the two that sort of stick out in my mind at this stage and good on them. They actually kept their doors open when they could and so then when the borders reopened in June and people started coming back in they could then you know keep going under restrictions of course but they could actually start trading properly again. And the thing that happened here that was sort of again quite remarkable was that we just had more and more people coming. As soon as those borders were open the region became a very much sought after destination. In South Australia there are 11 regional areas and the Clare Valley is the second smallest per capita to only to Kanga Islands. I suppose off the back of other regions, you know, we were seen as the little brother, little sister. And are we still seen that way? No, we're not.
0: Oh, so tell me, how has so things, has everything exceeded your expectations? Has COVID oh, transformed everybody. tourism? <laughs> Absolutely, no, it
1: has. It's the result that we've had during COVID has exceeded everybody's expectations that's the tourism commission's I think council levels definitely ground levels and operator levels so we have the regional visitor strategy which is developed with the South Australian Tourism Commission councils community operators and that sort of determines what our goals are for the a five-year period and then what our expenditure goal is as well And in addition to that, the SATC also puts out their 2030 tourism sector plan and that too sets goals for each of the regions. So at the end of last year, we had surpassed the 2025 goal and also had surpassed our 2030 goal. So in some ways I can say my job here is done. But then <laughs> I could also say that it has nothing to do with me and we're just blessed with fabulous operators. I was I going think to say, probably, pat yourself on the oh, back. No, no, no. I think it's more that we do have really good product and we have really a genuine product. We have a very authentic product up here. You know, we're, I think operators are very true to where they come from. So we have the fabulous food and wine offering that is very much the... Clare Valley itself region.
0: But have all the regions experienced that as well? No. Have su-
1: oh, really? So no, no, no. Is it just Clare that's. No, look, there have been a that. couple. Um, Air Peninsula has done really well, and Fleurier, I think, has done really well. Oh, there might be others, I'm sorry. I apologise to anybody else who I've forgotten. So our 2030 target was 166 million. Now, at the end of last year, we were 172, and it has gone above that since then. So It is fabulous that the challenge now is how do we keep that going. And and
0: what strategies have you got in place to keep it going?
1: So last year we really looked at putting things out to the Eastern Board. So we did a a promotion with Qantas Travel Insider that we sort of did a a month where we had – it went out on their EDMs, their email direct marketing, and it was online on the Qantas page. Then that stays up there for twelve months and we sort of looked at doing different things with we combined with the winemakers for gourmet gourmet and we had the wanganines come up and do sort of their I saw little that. not they're not influencers, they're people of influence as Pippa definitely pointed out to us. And, you know, that sort of gained a really good reaction to people. So it's really now how do we get out to again a larger a larger audience.
0: But saying that, can we service this growing tourism market? I mean, are there more accommodation places opening up?
1: There are definitely more accommodation places in the planning. At the moment, you know, just sort of off the top of my head, we have at least 30 to 40 more rooms Being considered, and that's just the ones that I know about at this stage. And then we have things like Country Club are doing an upgrade on there, so they they receive funding through the Tourism Industry Development Fund, which was done during COVID, which was a a really huge boost to businesses right throughout South Australia. That that's the beauty of what has happened is that people have really looked at what product we have here where the gaps are, and accommodation is definitely one of our gaps and definitely that luxury end accommodation. So there, there's definitely a lot of talk going on at the, at the moment around that sort of that area.
4: Mm. I heard
0: there's some tiny houses being planned.
1: There are actually some new tiny houses open in Mintero. In Mintero? Yeah. Oh, okay. So that was opened by Cabins, and Cabins are a company that... They have a really big following. They're Australia-wide. So they will they do it all for you. So you just need to give them the land. They will go to council. They'll get it all organised for you. They'll develop the pods. They'll bring them in. They'll put them in. They market them for you. They do the bookings. The um, only thing they don't do are the things that are on site, like the cleaning and, the you know, if they have firewood, that's the firewood prep. And that's the hardest thing at the moment, is that the whole region is so busy to try and find someone to come and clean yes. um, your B&B or your, or your cabin or wherever is really difficult.
0: Well, we've talked about the success of the Clare Valley. Have there been businesses that haven't survived no, the I'm COVID sure. epidemic or has most have most pulled through?
1: I can't be 100% sure. I mean, we have had businesses close. The biggest problems that we have at the moment, and this is happening all over the place, is that you can't get the staff to actually service your operation to the level that you want to. And I think that's one of the hardest things that's really sort of hitting people, hitting operators at the moment. And then, of course, if you can get the staff to come up here, where are you going to put them? Because accommodation is at an absolute premium or is not available at all. Yeah, and I mean, that is South Australia-wide... It's just a crazy problem that you think, how did this just happen all of a sudden? But um, it has.
0: Where do you want to see the Clare Valley in the next five years? And not just Clare Valley. I should mention Barra and also down to Port Wakefield, which is also a area. Oh yeah, area We're, we are Lockie a Hill. huge mm.
1: region. I think when you look at the trends in tourism, so agritourism is really on the rise at the moment. Health and wellness is on the rise at the moment. Food and wine is always a desired product. The Clare Valley is really well-placed to capitalise on all of those areas. So agritourism is something that we haven't really explored a lot here. It would be good to build on that side of things. We had a, a tourism experience forum here about, seems ages ago too, about six weeks ago. And we had a little shark tank at the end of it. And one of the products that we had, two products that sort of were highlighted that day. But one of them was a business that is looking at doing remedy cows. Remedy cows. Remedy cows. So that's where you go and hug a cow. So if you're, you know, feeling a bit stressed out or anything like that, or just if you love animals, you could do it as well. But that connection of getting up close and personal with farm animals and being able to actually give them a hug and a love and that sort of thing is supposed to be really, really beneficial for the soul. So that's a totally different form of agritourism. You know, that's, that's sort of taking it out there. But I really I love that idea and I think, you know, something a bit left of centre is always exciting. And then the other thing with the Clare Valley is that we have an amazing network of trails here. So we're crossed by the the Hyson, Mawson, Lavender Trail. We have the Clare Valley Short Walks where... So that was the Clare and Gilbert Valley Council got a consultancy to look at all the different trails throughout the region and come up with six short walks that people could do in half a day maximum. But that really sort of keeps people here for that little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we have the fabulous Riesling Trail. And if you haven't yet got on an e-bike and done the Riesling Trail. I don't think you've lived, myself. I just... I, so, what, I, have you done it? I have, <laughs> I have. I actually had... Last year, we had all of the... all the regional tourism managers get together and we take it to another region so that you can do a little bit of a showcase. So... Uh, we had them all up here and for the first time I went and got on an e-bike and did the reasoning trail. It was the best fun ever.
0: I love how it's an e-bike. You don't want to pedal. You no. Just...
1: <laughs> no, you don't want any hard work at all. <laughs> so, yes, but I just think the trails, with the health and wellness, we've got a real opportunity there to capitalise on it.
0: It's been fascinating hearing about oh, how tourism is going in the Clare and Gilbert Valleys area. Kudos to you, even though... You can't say that it's all about what you've done. It's it's fantastic, the result that has happened in the Clare Valley following COVID.
1: Oh, thank you, Annabelle. I just think we are blessed to have a fabulous region, good operators. We're close to... Adelaide. We're only, you know, an hour and a half drive from the, the centre of Adelaide. And you're here in a beautiful destination where you can stay two or three days. You can go out, you can discover the history and the heritage over in Mintero and um in Borough. You've got the silo art in Udunda and Farrell Flat. Yeah. I love
0: how you all the Paxton cottages have oh, all yes. been they look fantastic. redeveloped. And well, and then
1: that was another big thing they had there was the um, Copper and Stone Festival that was held at the back of the accommodation at Paxton, mm-hmm. and it was just—it was fabulous. There were so many people there. It was such a good lineup of operators, and it was in February, so it really sort of said, "Okay, the you know Clare Valley Tourism Region is open again for business." So, kudos to them, definitely.
2: Hi, I'm Henry from Cafe 1871. I'm the general manager and barista. Yeah, COVID was scary for us, just like it was for everyone. Um, We actually opened the cafe two weeks prior to COVID. Um, We had two weeks of awesome service, lots and lots of customers, local customers giving us support. And then during COVID we had to close down just like everyone else. Um, We were really lucky that we got to stay open. We only closed for a week and then we reopened just serving takeaway coffees and toasties out the window. Um, It only took maybe four or five days where we were still like we were back up to doing 150 coffees and 50 toasties um it was just a place that people could meet up outside of of being at home and meet up in public somewhere where they could still socially distance outside and
0: people still need their coffee even during COVID time so 150 coffees a day is that the average so it went back to what it usually is
2: when we first started it wasn't quite back up to normal Our average at the moment is about 250. Um, When we first started, it was up to about 300, but that was just because we were the new cafe on the block, so everyone was trying us out. Um, But we have about 200 regular customers now, which is really good.
0: If you didn't have that bifold window, what would that have meant for 1871 going through COVID?
2: Yeah, thanks ladies. Um, So with the bifold window, that just allowed us to maximize our waiting space. COVID happened right before Claire Winter, so Obviously, it wasn't ideal to have people waiting outside. Um, so we tried to get as many people inside as we could, but with limited space, it was difficult. Um, so without having, being able to serve outside, it would have been a lot harder to communicate with customers when their orders were ready and just have that general gas bag in the morning of people standing at the window having a chat. Basically, connection with customers and being a little bit more interpersonal was a, probably a big difference having the bifold
0: there's been so many tourists that have come from over the border even around south australia during covid did you find out where most people came from did you have those discussions with with tourists as they came through
2: oh absolutely yeah that's one of the you know things that keep you going like is the customer service side of things and um, we didn't get many Western Australia, Australians because I think they were in lockdown the whole time. But lots of Victorians, New South Wales, sometimes even the day after a lockdown lifted, they would be in Clare. So they must have been pretty desperate to get out.
0: <laughs> so what's ahead for 1871 heading into spring?
2: Oh, heading into spring, uh, that's that's a busy period in Clare. So we're just we're just ready for the waves of come tourists that come through. Um as soon as it hits mid September things really start to pick up so we're just uh, currently getting menus ready and training up the staff ready ready for the busy period.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and good luck for the rest of 2022.
2: Ah thank you very much. I'm happy to help out. <laughs> Claire Valley Podcast. Claire Valley Podcast. You're listening. Clare Valley Podcast. Claire
4: Valley Podcast. <laughs>
0: between Russia and Ukraine has been going for over 180 days. It's the biggest war in Europe since World War II and there's no signs of it easing. Russia is deliberately targeting schools, theatres, hospitals and the Ukrainian people have suffered immeasurable abuse and horror. Millions of Ukrainian people have been forced to leave their homes with only the clothes on their back and have crossed the border to Poland and many other European countries not knowing when they can go home while their brother or father, uncles, sons have been left behind to fight. While many Australians have supported the war effort by donating money and goods to NGOs, there are some people that have done so much more. One such person is Justina Rosa from Watervale. She works in suicide prevention and has worked in mental health for 18 years. But she was also born in Poland and still has a deep connection to that part of the world. Earlier this year, she started a GoFundMe page to help raise money for Ukrainian refugees. She then travelled to Krakow in Poland in April to work in the tents for five weeks, serving food to tens of thousands of refugees and blogging her journey along the way, detailing where the money that she raised was being spent. Four months on, Justina is back home, but she is still donating money back to the Ukrainian refugees, with the total now amounting to $58,000. A warning some of the content in this story is confronting. This is Justina's journey. You know how there's something big that happens,
3: like think of September 11. Most of us know what we were doing when September 11 happened. So when the 24th of February happened, I was at KT's picking up a bottle of wine. It was a Thursday and the news broke out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine And I guess it it, it was a shock factor, you know, disbelief that it's it's happening, that we actually have a war and it's not just any war, not that any war is any war, it's Russia, it's Russia invading a country, a free country. And it really hit me and it had a, a major impact on me mentally and almost physically for the next week and what unfolded from that. So why did it have an impact on you? Well, I think because it was it was a free world, knowing that people in the Ukraine would live just like us, they were a progressive country, they were a free country. I guess further to that, I was born in Poland. You know, it was it was next door. It was kind of it was it was real, even more real than being here and knowing what the history was of Russia and how aggressive they were, what what's, what, what's going to happen, what's going to be next. So throughout that week You know, I watched the news closely, really closely. And it was the Tuesday following, so Thursday and then moved to Tuesday the following week. I was in Adelaide. I was speaking to a friend of mine. At that time I decided, you know what? I'm gonna go overseas. And she's like, what do you mean you're gonna go overseas? I'm like, I'm gonna go over and help. And she's basically said, well, what about your kids? I'm like, no, don't worry about that. I'll work through that. So the next day, being Wednesday, I drove back to Watervale. I stopped off at my mum's house in Auburn. I told my mum, I'm like, I'm going to do this. And she's like, well, you can't do this. This is absolutely insane. You've got a family. I'm like, that's okay, mum. Like, they're safe and they're loved. And then my husband, so I contacted Nathan. I'm like, Nathan, <laughs> I'm going to go to Poland. I'm going to help. And he's like, okay, okay, okay. Um, let's work through this. I'm like, no, 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 I'm doing it. So, about lunchtime, Nathan calls me and he says, I have written, you know, half a page of why you shouldn't go. And I'm like, well, I can write 10 pages of why I should go. So, that night we sat down and my rational mind went, okay, let's go on Traveller, you know, the safe travelling place where we have any government updates about what's happening overseas. And at the time, the Australian government did not put any restrictions to travelling to Poland. So, I'm like, well... Governments know a lot, so if they haven't put anything on there, I think I'm gonna go on that to travel. And if between now and my trip, there is an, you know, an upgrade to travel warnings, I will not go. But that was basically the deal, was to go of safe traveler. Because although I really wanted to be rational about it, but deep down inside, I also knew that we were dealing with Russia. So it's not as, there's any
0: logic behind. Exactly, uh, I know that you have that connection being born in Poland did you know people from Ukraine was there anyone that you knew that was in danger and that was one of the driving forces as well
3: um look one
0: of the families
3: that we knew that we were friends with they were going actively going over back to the Ukraine to help people come over to Poland so they were actively crossing the border to rescue them you know they had elderly people who did not want to leave you know they didn't believe it was happening although so they you were, were hearing in these stories yeah directly from our Ukrainian friends at the time, we did set up the GoFundMe page, which, you know, I really thought I'd just raise $5,000 and, you know, we'll just keep transferring the money over. So every time, you know, we got to like 1000 thousand, two thousand $2,000, I transferred it and that money was used to either bring people over from Ukraine or to help them to settle in. Because if you can imagine, people come over with nothing, just one bag. So that was the first connection. And I guess what the interesting part of this story is... I went online to Google all these non-government organisations helping out. And I'm like, oh, I'll register with all these. So I sent out all these emails going, okay, so if I go over, I need to be connected to them. So I sent it to Caritas, uh, to Red Cross, um, to World Central Kitchen, you know, all these major NGOs who I saw on the news were participating. Well, I heard from nobody. And I thought, shit, <laughs> What am I going to do? And at the time, I knew that people were arriving at the train station because that was on the news. But I didn't want to worry the family, so I said to the family here and over there going, no, 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 look, I've got a gig volunteering. I'll I'll have a routine. It's going to be fine. But, you know, they didn't know that I had none of that lined up. So the day I boarded that flight to go overseas and the day I landed, I had absolutely nothing lined up. And the next day after I arrived in Poland, I literally walked over to the train station, saw a tent that's how the journey started of helping out so it was just going and completely blindfolded to it but knowing that I had to be brave and um, rock up I I could see that one was a food tent one was one where people were sleeping in and one was a clothing tent so I approached the food tent because that's where the biggest amount of activity was and it was cold. It was quite cold. And um, there was this young man that walked out and he was taking rubbish out. And this I, is
0: in Krakow? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. And, 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 like, it's it's quite a, you know, central point. It's the Krakow Galleria. It's it's, it's a major shopping centre um, with a train station there. So it's quite a big, you know, um, zone with a lot of people crossing through it. So this young fellow walked out with the rubbish and I approached him saying, can I help out? He's like, yep, yeah, just go in there and serve food. So I walked in and... It was busy. There were people everywhere. It was quite warm in there because the heaters were going. You know, I had to take a breath because there was, you know, it was just buzzing, buzzing of people. But it's really hard to describe when you've got people who are escaping a place. Is it fear? Is it peace because all of a sudden they are in a safe place? Is it emptiness? At that point, I was pointed to a table and they were giving out fruit salad. And the whole thing later on, as I found out, the reason they were giving fruit salad is because they wanted... Well, they were giving other food too, but they wanted people to have access to healthy food. You know, knowing that they were escaping, that, you know, the bodies run down, they needed to have access to nutritious food. So I was scooping this fruit salad into a cup you know, one cup after the other, and I was just looking down. I wanted to perfect, you know, my kind of – of how I was doing it, making sure i get the right serve. So I was just looking down, 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 and handing it out. And all of a sudden I looked up, and there was this little kid, you know, about Sebastian's age – and sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional now – and, you know, you make eye contact and you realise that this could be your little human, and you think, okay, I get it. I get why I'm here. And I had to tell myself to get my shit together – you know smile you're here to give the best smile and the best service and the warmest you know hug in a glance that you can possibly give someone and that's that was day one and you know there was thousands of people that were served that day and you know you have this silence um, when you look into someone's eyes but you just smile and everyone's grateful and everyone nods and there's this silence of appreciation and yeah the acknowledgement And the volunteers, and what I found out really soon after, is that 95% of the volunteers in a tent were not Polish. They were from all around the world. You know, I was the only Aussie. We had people from Japan. We had people from Canada. We had people from the US, from Italy, from Holland, from the UK, from Ireland. All these people that came together to
0: help. What was your daily routine there? Yes, Because I can imagine it would have been long hours and... Did you have somewhere to stay? I know that's probably n- yeah, not yeah. that
3: important in the scheme of things, but... Well, I was very privileged because I guess much more privileged than, than others because I, I, I did have a free apartment that I could use that belonged to one of my um, distance family members over there. Whereas the volunteers from all across the world, they stayed in hostels. Mm. So they're paid, you know, every night to stay in a hostel, which was amazing. I guess from a routine perspective, you know, it was, the shift started at 8 So at eight, we'll go and we'll pick up the fruit for the fruit bar, I should say, and then we'll set up and then we start cutting and preparing and then serving. It will probably take us about four or five hours to be, you know, from a start to finish of the actual fruit service. And then we'll tend to go and debrief, you know, have a moment to debrief before the next part of the day started. I should also say that the fruit bar was run completely on donations, so we had sponsors. So the money that we had coming from from the GoFundMe from Clare Valley was actually then servicing that freight station. I
0: was gonna say where that money went to. Yeah. yeah. So none
3: of that was funded by any government. It was all the free will of people. That, that's the only way it functioned. You know, being turned around by the volunteers on the ground. So it was mm-hmm. quite phenomenal. I think another thing that was amazing too was a guys that I met, Mark, who was from the US, beautiful father of two girls he was actually staying he was using his points to stay, stay at the sheraton <laughs> fancy i'm um, for of volunteer but anyway the sheraton would take in people like so they were taking ukrainian refugees in and then with that um there was a chef named Alissio who would use the kitchen after hours to cook thousands of meals to then drive them over to the ukraine the general manager of the Sheraton gave us one of the rooms so we can store any of the things that we were packing for the Ukraine, particularly the medical needs. So to me, I thought it was quite beautiful to have a, a massive business. All these businesses were contributing to it. Either um completely free will, everyone stepped up to make this happen and it wasn't governments that stepped up. There were individual community members, you know, communities and businesses that really stepped
0: up to... There were so many other things that you've provided to the Ukrainian people.
3: Essential goods. So people arrive with a bag. You know, you have got no toothbrush, no toothpaste, no nothing. Um, Say you're a female, you, you have your period kids, kids that n- needed to continue their education because they were homeschooled. So, you know, believe it or not, there's a war happening, but the Ukrainian education department is still providing schooling over, uh, you know, teams or, or whatnot, you know. Um, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> we complain about homeschooling with COVID. Imagine homeschooling of a war um, as you're sitting in a shelter. It's, it's absolutely incredible. Anyway, so we worked with a, with Ukrainian women who help us helped us write a list of essential needs goods that they needed because isn't it about me I I, I I don't know you know I wanted to make sure it came from from the people so day in day out I will go and and buy thousands of essential goods like soaps, um, shampoos, notepads for the kids, pens. And socks. Socks. It's freezing. It was so cold. So those essential goods, which again were only possible because of all the donations that we had from here. How much money did you raise yourself? Right now, we're, I think we're at about $58,000, which is amazing. And you know, also if you consider the currency exchange rate, you might as well times it by three because that's what it's worth over there so it's you know it works out to be about let's make it 160,000 dollars worth of goods we'll be able to purchase because originally people wanted to donate goods in in Australia but the the posted rates rates are are quite high plus it makes sense just to buy
0: things there as needed Mm. versus our goods from here in one of the posts you mentioned about one of your debrief sessions and you'll discuss what to spend the yeah. money on and you mentioned the fruit but the other thing that you spent money on was body bags. Yeah. Yeah. That's quite confronting.
3: It's really confronting and it's you know it's confronting and it's also you start you start to understand how big this is. That you would think that this is something that a government would step up to do not volunteers but Volunteers are so much more responsive than by the time you get a sign-off from a government to transport body bags. in, And that was the time of butcher, so it was an open open morgue of, of people, and their bodies, and, you know, th- there was no response happening at the time. So in order to get in there, these were common people like you and I. They were literally driving in to be able to provide these goods. Once we received a request like a body bag's, we would go and source the goods and we would take them to the Sheraton and from there on we would, you know, box things up ready to go on the back of a car to be delivered.
0: How many body bags are we talking? Oh, look, we're
3: talking about I think the first lot was about 500 but by the time we were finished it was about 2,000.
0: Yeah, it's, it's horrendous. I presume you would have sat down and had discussions mm. or tried to bond with some of the refugees. Yeah. What were some of the
3: stories that... You heard? Yeah. Oh, I've had so many stories. But the ones that really, you know, stick out to me or stand out, this um, particular woman and a husband that would have been in her 60s, they had a son who stayed behind to fight because, you know, with the mandate of anyone over the age of 18 to 60 had to stay behind and fight. Unless they had something like three or four children, they had to stay behind. So their son stayed behind this beautiful couple came into the tent every single day to get food and every single day they were waiting to know the son was alive. And he got to a, a time where they didn't hear from him from days, days and days and days. And I think what was quite interesting, the bond that you make with complete strangers – the time they heard that he was alive, they came and shared that with me. And you know, you, you both laugh and cry and hug and we we are watching the war unfold live. So these people have got a, a, air raid alarms on their phone. So they are in a completely different country, but they know if their area they live in is being bombed. So they if they have family that chose to be left behind, especially the elderly, they watch it they watch it basically unfold live so you've got people holding their breath going are they going to survive this or not so this ongoing uncertainty that plays out is it's absolutely horrendous
0: and the horrible stories that we're hearing about what the russian soldiers are doing to the ukrainian people especially the women as well
3: completely the rape of of women of children it was horrendous and uh, you know I'm okay because I'm um, perhaps I work in this space too so I'm quite exposed to a lot of our human horrors but this is next level and you might have had volunteers who have never experienced anything like this and they're hearing these really raw stories of horrendous things happening to children around say you know sexual assault but then you know the the fear of children so I had this little boy telling me how they were escaping. There were all of them in a, in a car, packed in a car. They were going past burning bodies in, in you know, other cars. They're, they're, they've been shot or they were trying to go over the mines. that are left on a road so people, you know, couldn't cross. Um, so you know this impact's not going to end at the end of this war. This is going to take generations for people to overcome. You know, it's hard now but isn't going anywhere because of the damage that continues to happen and everything that the young, the next generations have to live with.
0: In the lead-up to Russia invading, were they fully aware that they were in danger or was it a lot of denial?
3: Oh, there was a lot of denial. In -hmm. fact, um, there was still a lot of denial. My, My experience was with some of the elders that this was even happening, that some were forced to leave because the children asked them to leave versus what was happening. But at the same time, there was many people who have family in Russia. Family living in Russia didn't believe them this is happening. So you had, you know, sisters talking to each other and going, well, I don't believe you. And all of a sudden the family dynamic falls apart because there's this disbelief in people living in Russia that this is even happening. Mm.
0: Did you ever feel unsafe while you were over there?
3: Well yes i think again it's rational mind so you'd be walking through the town and you have helicopters flying really low you know above you so everyone looks up absolutely everybody looks up Um, because you just don't know again how, how predictable it is Lviv, which is just over the border which is the western side of the ukraine a lot of people were there and it was seen as a relatively safe ukrainian city at the time so um, a few of our friends that we were working with um, transporting the goods over there would, you know, often cross and they felt quite safe crossing the border going p- to that western city. And there was this particular incident. One of the chefs, our friends, Alisio, was going over to the Ukraine to take thousands of meals that he cooked um, to a children's hospital. We also made um, thousands of little Easter presents for the Ukrainian children in the hospital, plus medical goods so we just packed this car and it was early on it was just around easter so it would have only been i would have been there i don't know maybe 10 days and received a text message from alicia saying they're being bombed and then that was it we didn't hear anything I remember calling my mum, crying, going, I don't know if Alicia is dead or, you know, we haven't heard from anything. Of course, my mum was angry with me. She's like, you shouldn't be there in the first place. I'm um, like, well, I am, I'm here now. I'm just trying to deal with this. That night, we were all together, you know, I guess trying to be together and make sense of what, has, what hasn't happened. We're sitting in this complete uncertainty to know if our friend's dead or alive with the airstrikes that took place. We were just leaving the apartment. It was quite late at night and there was this man walking through with a hoodie, like, barely putting his legs forward. And I just realised it was Elysio. So I ran up to him. I dropped my bag, ran up to him, and he just collapsed in my arms, crying, 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 recalling what he saw, recalling the children's hospital. You know, you've got badly injured children, innocent children, um, you know, limbs missing, no parents, waking up to nobody, talking about seeing the Russian soldiers who were also in the hospital who were being treated. You know, he was recalling the horror Uh, other friends were just behind me and we needed to put him to bed the boys pretty much carried him to bed and and he was shaking he was you know laying there in a fetal position and we wrapped him up in a blanket in a cocoon and you know stayed to to let him fall asleep but um you know we were grateful that he came back to us but it was one of those moments where you literally hold your breath the next day alicia kind of thought i'm never going to go back like i can't believe you know maybe i've pushed my luck a little bit too far but that wasn't the case, you know, he, he got to put himself back together he said, I need to go back and can keep helping these people, especially seeing what he saw. And this year wasn't Polish, he was Italian, just, again, a random person helping out. How was it to leave? Well, there was, a, there was a significant moment that was actually happening at the time and that was going towards the Russia's Independence Day, which is the 9th of May. And at the time people were worried, were worried of what was going to happen next. Is there a possibility that Putin is just going to unleash war because he wants to win this war, if there's going to be a nuclear attack? And um, so there was a lot of unrest in a community as well as media and not just, you know, Polish media, Ukrainian media, the international media about what could happen on that day. To be honest, it scares the Jesus out of you. You think I, I'm right here. If they're gonna go, you're gonna. You know, you're only 200 k's away from it. I was sincerely worried. So I thought, you know, it would be time to come home, and I was ready to come home at that time. Although you, you want to be there, like I, I felt alive. You, you take away the politics of workplaces. You take away our norms, the stuff that we create in our daily lives this chaos um, in a sense sometimes we worry about things that are really not worth worrying about and you step away from that and you're completely at service to others and it's not about you it's not about Mm. anything else but being at service to others and it gives you a sense of freedom I think I like to draw on something that was said to me before I left and um, I think I put it in one of my posts Ellie Hodges who's a resident in Watervale she She said to me, before I left, she used an analogy. She said that life is brutal. It's brutal and beautiful all at the same time. It's woven together. And I think it's such a beautiful description because although there was so much horror happening over there, there was so much beauty in that human connection, the fact that complete strangers stepped up to help.
0: What's the current state at the moment with, say, the refugee camps and the amount of refugees still coming over the border?
3: yeah I think they've had almost almost five million people have crossed the border to Poland now what 's really sad is that there's now there 's a lot of resentment in poland it 's quite sad. people are thinking that you should be helping Polish people out, not Ukrainian people so there 's a level of resentment and aggression towards the Ukrainian people. Um, or 160 days in uh, people are a little bit over it which is it's it's awful and where do you fit five million people into another country well look a a few couple of million have moved on but they want to stay they want to stay because they want to go home I had um, beautiful people here in Australia wanting to house Ukrainian people but Australia is so far away so my experience talking to them about coming here was that Unless they've got friends or family already here, they want to stay close to home because, you know, their husbands are over the border. Uh, the brothers, their sons, they just want to go home. They don't mm. care what state the house is in. They just want to go home. So they used to get assistance. Well, they do get assistance. They've got like a 3 visa, but all their assistance has dried up. It's extremely tough because most of these um, tents that with food, have they've all been closed now. In Australia, when we have a natural disaster, we have things like Army Reserves step in. You know, we have got, um, uh, you know, if you've got the Californian bushfires, well, we send our army over to help or vice versa. But there's none. There's no help on the ground. So you've got organisations with existing resources trying to service an additional three, four million people. It doesn't work. Yeah. There's only so much you can do with existing workforce if it's not there. So, you know, that's what they're experiencing. How are you
0: feeling being back here and hearing about what's going on over there?
3: Um, I think for a while I felt a little bit empty. You know, I would go for a walk on a Riesling Trail and, you know, trying to make sense of these parallel worlds that we live in. And then I realised there is no sense making any of this. It is just what it is. At first, I I might have felt a little bit a bit of anger towards, you know, I guess to us sometimes as a community, as a society, how quickly we can turn away and forget things unless they're really in front of us. I have this motto in life that if not me, then who? To to step up because if we are always looking towards other people sometimes nothing happens so don't be that person that's looking towards other people for the change you know be that change it doesn't have to be a big thing it can be a small thing but don't have the bystander responsibility so always just step up sometimes being back being back at work full-time with the kids sometimes it's easy for me it'll be very easy for me to say I can't help anymore I don't have time to help but again, who am I not to have time to help? These people also haven't chosen to to end up in a completely different country. I feel it'd be a little bit selfish for me to say I don't, I don't have time to do this and that was me or my child. I wouldn't want anyone to look away. And I think in the times of uncertainty, in the times of hurt, you know, you look around and all of us are helpers, mm. Um, we can all help and we all have something to contribute. So I do feel sad that we have looked away, but I am also hopeful that um, just like I have gone on this, not just a journey overseas, but perhaps an emotional journey trying to sense make of us as a society, everyone's on that journey, you know. And just sometimes it's it's easy to look away from the pain. Don't look away from the pain. There's also, you learn so much from sitting in that place of pain and discomfort
0: you raised fifty eight thousand dollars. Are you still sending money over yeah. to the Ukraine? Yeah. Yep.
3: So I just did a I did a transfer probably about two two weeks ago. Another thousand dollars. So every time I raise about a thousand dollars, I send it over. So there's two actually organisations now that I met while I was over there, who I support. Um, so one of them is buying um, essential like staple food items for a week of grocery shopping, and the other one is helping the schools. Because, again, I'm really mindful that now if some of these people have settled in and they don't have a job, how do you buy food? I'm pretty sure the inflation rate in Poland is at something like 13%. So, you know, we complain about 6%. So, you know, to buy food over there is really expensive. Yes, the schools, you know, so many schools have just disappeared. The schools over there have absorbed so many students, And that's huge you know you've got teachers who all of a sudden have an increase of 50 percent of students in their schools you know that they're trying to service um, or teach nurture which is absolutely phenomenal you know they can't afford that because nobody pays them for that so you know again i'm really passionate about um education and i think what is it's a foundation to life so making sure these kids have a continuum of of that nurture through education all the money
0: that you raised,
3: was most of that coming from the Clare Valley, do you think? Yes. I, well, I think – so with the $58,000, we had $17,000 that came from my ponga because we had friends who ran, a, a, I guess, a quiz night from us. But we would have had maybe about $25,000 coming from the Clare Valley, which was phenomenal. And and I feel really bad because I don't being new to the Clear Valley, I don't know that many people. And I feel like I should just walk around and thank everyone because as a community. Hold a big sign up yes. on the main street. Thank, thank you everybody. Thank you, thank you. So so grateful. Um, you know, to have complete strangers trust in you to make sure that the money that they well give so generously goes to where it needs to go. So a huge clare Valley community effort. Um absolutely amazing. And um you know it makes me tear up because again, complete strangers who I walk past in the street, I've got no idea who you are, but
0: you know, I'm really grateful. Everyone is Justina Rosa. If you would like to donate money to Justina's GoFundMe page, the details are in the podcast show notes. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please let me or the council know of any stories, issues or community people that should be showcased in this podcast. I would love to hear from you. In the next episode, it's election time. We'll be putting all the council and mayoral nominees in the spotlight. You'll get to know all about them and why you should vote for them. I'm looking forward to this episode and I hope you will take the time to listen in. This podcast is brought to you by the Clare and Gilbert Valleys Council. I'm Annabelle Homer. I'll catch you next time.